Hi, I'm Wendy. And I'm Gwen. Thanks for joining us today on Farmworker Chronicles. On today's show, we're going to talk about the day-to-day nuances of H-2A workers. More specifically, how does day-to-day life for H-2A workers differ from most people? Yeah, and to answer that question, we listen to and are going to share some audio of H-2A workers who were interviewed by Dr. Anissa Klein for her report, Latino H-2A Workers and Their Importance for Ohio's Agricultural Industries. All of the interviews are anonymous, and all we know about the speakers is that they are H-2A workers in Ohio. And a quick note that you might notice the audio quality is a little bit low, but that's just because they were done in the field, and we'll make sure you understand what the workers are saying. One thing that really impacts day-to-day life is housing. H-2A workers, especially first-timers, don't always know where they will live. They live in employer-provided housing, which has consequences like being considered an occupant rather than a tenant. More on this shortly. In contrast, we can choose where we want to live. We can go online to research rentals or hire a realtor to help us find a place that meets our needs. We can also view and inspect an apartment or house before committing to it and signing a lease. So generally, we tend to have control over where we choose to live. Let's hear an H-2A worker's response when asked about his housing. What's the house like? Do you like it? Yes, it's fine. How many people share a room with you? Well, there's four per house, but where I am, there's three. Three in the room or three in the house? The house has two rooms and each room has two workers. We have bunk beds. This H-2A worker is basically describing dormitory-style housing. Housing for H-2A workers ranges from one- to two-story houses, apartments, barracks, mobile homes, trailers, and motels. Some are in cities, on work sites, right next to or behind an employer's home, or are in rural communities in the middle of nowhere. Most of us can choose where we want to live based on what services are available to us, such as schools, emergency services, amenities, and affordability, and we can choose to live in the city or in rural communities. We can also choose not to live near our bosses or job site. That's what I would choose. (laughs) Yeah, I know. (laughs) I've done a bit of work in rural communities. I coordinated a mobile health clinic more than a decade ago. One evening, an incident occurred at the agricultural labor camp, and we needed emergency services. EMS got lost on their way to the agricultural labor camp due to its remote location. Luckily, there was workers on site who could keep the patient stable. And once the paramedics arrived, they transported the patient to the hospital. Lastly, if most of us lose our jobs, we don't immediately lose our housing. As tenants, if we do lose our housing, then we at least have some notice. However, that amount changes depending on where you live. H-2A workers, because they are occupants rather than tenants, have no such notice. Once they lose their jobs, they must go home as soon as possible. They don't have the opportunity to find housing elsewhere.
At the beginning of the episode, Wendy shared that we're going to be thinking about the question of how does day-to-day life differ for H-2A workers compared to most people. And so Wendy just talked about housing and how that can impact day-to-day life. And something that popped out to me in the audio that we have from Anissa was something that I'm going to just label shopping on a whim. So for me, if I need to go get necessities or conveniences at the last minute, I can do that, right? If I don't have spaghetti sauce or something random for the night ahead, then I can just run out and grab that pretty easily, and I can do it on my own schedule. However, for H-2A workers, this isn't really a reality to be able to go pick up things last minute. Because most H-2A workers don't have their own means of transportation and public transit isn't really developed in Ohio, it can be hard for them to even get to a store. And because of the nature of their work, they're typically in pretty rural areas, and so delivery isn't always a sensible option either. ¿Y usted el fin de semana pasada se fue a algún lado usted? And last weekend, did you go anywhere? Last weekend, well, they only take us to shop at Walmart. We go there or play soccer. ¿Y usted tiene la licencia de conducir de Ohio? No. Do you have an Ohio driver's license? No. ¿Algunos de ustedes tienen licencia o nadie? Are there workers with driver's licenses? Yes, there are two or so. Uh, they're the ones who drive the bus to work. Yes, that would be necessary. And have you learned about living here? Well, honestly, we haven't experienced that much because it's a ranch. I think it's different living in a city. I imagine it's more expensive, more complicated, more movement. I go from work to home, home to work, and on the weekends we go to Walmart to buy food and back home. That's our routine. Getting basic needs can be a struggle if you're in rural areas generally, and especially if you don't have the means to be able to navigate the infrastructure that we have here. However, some H-2A employers will take their workers into towns to go to a store for their basic needs once a week. This isn't something that employers are required to do, but sometimes they'll put it in their contract. And it's a really great way to make sure that workers do have access to those basic needs. However, they'll often only go to one store and it's on the employer's schedule. So they don't really have that option of going last minute to pick up some allergy meds or pain meds or whatever it is they might need. Instead, they have one place that they can go to once a week. Regarding freedom, it's when they want to. Maybe they take us to the city. For example, we want to buy sneakers, clothes, shoes, whatever. They only take us to Walmart and back to the house. Sometimes we want to go to the mall in Lima or Finley. Well, it gets complicated. And sometimes they say yes, and sometimes they say no. It's hard. Yeah, it would be better if you had more freedom. Uh-huh. Yeah, like I said, we have no way of getting around here. We go between work and the house, and that's our whole day. While it's great that H2A employers are taking workers into stores or into town, you know, once a week for their basic needs, we are happy that that's happening because otherwise it would probably be virtually impossible for workers to get what they need. But at the same time, Those H-2A workers don't have the 
kind of autonomy that we enjoy of being able to go to wh whichever store they want whenever fits their schedule. Rather, they're a little bit more confined. I mentioned a little bit about navigating our infrastructure and how most H2A workers don't have their own mode of transportation. This is because in Ohio and most states really, it's really difficult for H2A workers to get a license. We're gonna dive into it a little bit and talk about the barriers to getting a license that H2A workers might face. First off, the business hours of most BMVs are not really convenient for most people. And this is especially true for H2A workers who work from the sun up to sundown during some parts of their season. So either they need to just be lucky and be available during that time, or they need to get permission from an employer to take time off to go to the BMV during their business hours. Let's say that that barrier has been met, right? H2A workers are able to be at the BMV or available during the business hours of the BMV. Next, they need to get there. They don't have a license, right? So they can't drive themselves and they need a ride. Maybe they know somebody with a license who could take them. An employer, they could ask their employer to take them, but odds are they're already taking off work. So then to ask also for the employer to give them a ride is kind of a big ask. Um, maybe they could ask a coworker who already has a license to take them to the BMV, but then that coworker will probably need to get permission to take off time too. So it can be difficult just to get there. But let's say that you're an H2A worker, you get yourself to the BMV during the business hours that they're open. Next, you need to make sure you have the right documents. For the easiest driver's license for H2A workers to get, there are kind of two ways they can do it. And for both of them, you need proof of a social security number, which on the BMV's website, it says proof of social security number in parentheses, if ever assigned. And I'm not totally sure what that means. And so I don't know if H2A workers are totally sure what that means. <laughs> so that leaves like kind of an open question of, do you have the right documents? Are you sure that this trip is even gonna be worth your time? And then once you have that kind of proof of social security number, you need either an employer authorization document, which is something that you need to apply for if you're not a citizen, and it can take longer than an H2A season to get that document. Or you need a passport or some other travel document and a letter from your employer that's on letterhead and has been written within the last 60 days. So potentially to get your license, you're asking your employer for a time off, a ride to the BMV, and a letter on letterhead, basically just saying that you work there. So that's a lot in itself. But then the last and potentially largest barrier is that if you're an H2A worker, odds are you don't speak English or you speak very little English, and whoever's at the BMV probably only speaks English. So there's that language barrier there. A hurdle as well. However, this doesn't stop all ag workers from getting a license and a car. Usted tiene licencia de conducir de Ohio. Sí. Sí. Y ya me dijo que sí tiene su propio auto, sí. su propio carro. Do you have an Ohio driver's license? Okay. Yes. And you told me you have a car? Yes. You own your car? Yes. It's a little car to get around in. Yeah, it must help you a lot, right? Yes. In fact, I decided to buy a car this year because it's been a struggle. Asking people for favors, for rides to the store, they get busy. And that's why I didn't want it to get late. People have things to do as well. And that's why I got a car. But getting a car is a different thing than maintaining a car. 
I view and probably most of us do view getting a car as an investment. But for seasonal ag workers like H2A workers, instead of an investment, getting a car can be a bit of a gamble. These workers aren't sure if they'll be going back to the same place the next season for the next contract. And they have to make sure that they're on top of their car maintenance and insurance costs. And that takes money and time. For example, one worker who did get a car and then got a contract to go back to that same place, that next season he was given less hours working and now he's having trouble maintaining car costs and spending money to his family. Yes, it's difficult for them, it's difficult for us, because they have a commitment to us. And we have obligations too. For example, we have bills. I have to pay for car insurance, car repairs, everything. I need to maintain income too, because I have to send money home to my family in Mexico too. Because H-2A workers have some difficulty being able to get their basic needs whenever they need, some workers who have been here before and are aware of these kind of conditions plan ahead and around these obstacles. All right, Gwen, so what does planning ahead look like for you? Well, as our listeners may have guessed based off of what I said before, I don't really plan ahead very well. <laughs> Every now and then I'll like put things in a calendar, do some meal prepping, but mostly I just kind of get things as I need them. And that works for me because I don't need to find a ride or worry about scheduling too much. What about you? What does planning ahead look like for you? Planning ahead for me is making a to-do list. I have a notebook in my purse where I jot things down as I need to get them done. I rely a lot on text reminders from like my hairdresser, doctor, pharmacy, and you know the place where I get my car repaired. That's great, and that's a good system that can work for you when you're able to do things kind of last minute. H-2A workers, like we talked about, can't really do those things, so they'll prep before they even arrive in the U.S. to make sure that they have everything that they need. So somebody that Anissa spoke to talked a little bit about this. During your time here at some point, have you gone to the doctor, dentist, clinic, seen a nurse, any kind of health services? No, no, no. Was there a time when you wanted health care services but you couldn't get there? No, because most of the time we bring medicine from home, like for a headache, cold, or a fever. I see, so you bring your own medicine. Has there been a time when someone wanted to go to the doctor but could not. No, almost never. We all have different medicines. It's understandable. You have to come prepared for everything. Yes, you have to come prepared for anything. So that's pretty crazy, Gwen, that he needs to prepare for six to like 10 months of bringing meds from Mexico because of his lack of mobility to the grocery stores to get these much needed medications. It's important that he has those meds though because the work in its very nature is really hard and it can be really painful. But how are you gonna know like exactly how much medicine you're gonna need for six to ten months worth? It just it sounds like doomsday prepping to me. Yeah. I can't <laughs> imagine what his experience is like going through like TSA. <laughs> right, yeah, with just a bunch of, of medicine. Like, well, I heard that zombies were coming and I just want to be ready. 
But the good news is it's not doomsday for these workers. Even though getting around to get basic needs and having less control over their housing situation is a reality for these workers, they can rely on some community service organizations to help fill some of those gaps that they face. For example, there are health clinics, legal service clinics, there's a migrant rest center, and other local nonprofits that help fill those needs. There's also more information being gathered through work like Anissa's research to help fill those gaps. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Farmworker Chronicles. We are your hosts and producers, Gwen and Wendy. Our executive producer is Chris Pfeiffer. And our assistant producer is Jared Rosenberg. We thank Anissa Klein, or I should say Dr. Anissa Klein, for the audio used today. She kindly shared the audio from a survey she conducted of 285 H-2A workers in Ohio. More information from her study can be found in her report, Latino H-2A Workers, and their importance for Ohio's agricultural industry. Just Google it, and it's the first thing that pops up. And if you want to join the conversation, we invite you to go to wgte.org FWC. Until then, I'm Wendy. And I'm Gwen, reminding you to thank a farm worker. Bye. Bye. WGTE. Voices around us. WGTE is supported in part by American Rescue Plan Act funds allocated by the City of Toledo and the Lucas County Commissioners and administered by the Arts Commission.